understanding what it is that you have a passion for doing, like what excites you to get up and go to work every day kind of thing. So there's a piece of that, I think, that really comes into play when you're looking at what's the right role for me, you know, and most people don't leave their jobs, they leave their supervisors. So again, it goes back to that relationship and this idea of, can I work for somebody who doesn't necessarily align with my values and beliefs? And I think that's, you know, something we need to ask ourselves. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hey, welcome back. On this episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, I'm chatting with Sandy Lamb. Sandy is an executive coach, a keynote speaker, and a TEDx speaker coach. She did the corporate gig and saw executive coaching and leadership development as the perfect way to use her skills, help other people excel, and balance work with family and wellness. Sandy helps executives build a culture of belonging and respect in the workplace by focusing on authentic leadership and emotional intelligence. She's the CEO of Altitude Executive Coaching, and she's one of my co-authors in the number one international bestseller, Cracking the Rich Code, Volume 10. I wanted to have her on to talk about EQ, or Emotional Quotient and Empathy. Sandy, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. I'm excited for the conversation. First, where do you call home and where are you connecting from? I am in, well, original home is Chicago, Illinois, but I've been in Colorado Springs, Colorado for almost 10 years now. But grew up in Chicago. I did. What kind of lessons did you learn about money or entrepreneurship as a kid growing up in Chicago? Well, I grew up on like the Southwest side, so not in the city, but in the suburb. Went to an all-girl Catholic high school. And I would say, well, the first lessons that I learned were from my parents. Seems like the usual, right? Probably. And I was thinking about this the other night and recalled that my parents lived in their home for almost 40 years in the Chicago area, and which is very typical at the time. And he paid $16,000 for his new home. <laughs> Like how is like, I was thinking about that. I'm like, wow, total mind blow, right? <laughs> and so what I learned about money was, interestingly enough, money has never been motivator for me. It's never been an idol for me. And I think, thankfully, it's because I've always had a great job and had a good income and never really had to worry about it. But mm -hmm. also because of the way I was raised and the fact that my dad was, my parents were very frugal we didn't think you and I talked about this. We didn't go to five-star resorts as kids. You know, we went camp in a little pop-up camper or in a tent and drove all over in our little station wagon. So it was, I just had a respect for money, a healthy respect for it, but it never really was a motivator for me. So can you point to any, you know, a lot of people have different stories about growing up and about you know, one of mine involves going from store to store to store to store, comparing prices for jeans to buy for school. Many people have stories about their parents' interactions around money. So do you have any of those kinds of stories that sort of you remember and they become part of your money story? Like parents' relationship with money, some way of spending that you guys had as kids, but those stories that become, you know, blocks in your money wall. 
Well, I can tell you that I hate Sears and Grandma's <laughs> <laughs> because that seemed like the place that my parents always shopped for clothes. <laughs> Mine, too. Mine too. Uh, yeah. So that tells you something right there. I also grew up working at Kmart, which Kmarts aren't really around anymore, but I got a job at my neighbor across the street was uh, head of HR at Kmart and got me a job at 16. And I worked there all through high school and came back during, you know, college summers and worked there. So that tells you something too. I'm already working kind of at a discount store. And the funny thing is at the point when I got money in my life and I started having a career and making money, my spending habits were still like the Kmart and the Walmart. And it's still that way today. I mean, I still shop at Walmart and at Kohl's and some of these other stores, no Sears. <laughs> Thankfully, there are no Sears in, in the area. But so even when you have the money that you can spend, you don't necessarily do it just because I appreciate the value of money. And I, you know, but my best friend in college and to this day, I used to call her frugal Fanny because she was just like super, super frugal. It still is very much a tight lot when it comes to money. But yeah, that it's just kind of the way we were raised. And, you know, my parents didn't have a lot of money, but we didn't want for anything necessarily either. I mean, I've talked to people who had money and didn't spend it. And I've talked to people who didn't have money and wanted to spend it. I sort of fall in that category. And so later in life, I want to buy, I want the nicer car. I want the bigger house. I want the, because I mm -hmm. wanted the things I couldn't have as a kid. And I wanted to provide those things for my kids and for my family because we couldn't have those when I was a kid. But it sounds like you're pretty just consistent. Like there was mo enough money and you just kind of went along with it and it was okay. And it kind of, you know, becomes the lessons later. I'm frugal and that's what I am. Yeah. I guess the one area where I splurged maybe is I grew up driving like Fords. And, you know, my very first car was a Ford Escort. And then I owned a Honda for a little while. And then when I was living in California, near where you are now, I bought a Lexus at auction. Mm. And, you know what they say, it's like, once you buy a Lexus, <laughs> you never go back. So I will say I was pretty consistent about driving Lexuses, which seemed like extra to me, you know, like compared to my Fords or whatever I grew up with. So I guess if there's any guilty pleasure, that's it for me is my cars. And now after having two of them totaled, but thankfully one was when my daughter who was 17 was driving and six of the airbags deployed. So she, I say, you know, they're very, very safe cars. <laughs> it did its job. And now I'm driving an Audi. So it still feels kind of, you know, it's, it's good. They're nice. They're actually, they're not the <laughs> but, it, but it's like the one thing that I allow myself, you know, yeah. we don't live in like million dollar home kind of thing, but I drive it, a nice car. You don't have a choice in the Bay area. Like every home is a million dollar home. It's pretty crazy. This is true. This, this is, is true. true. So the rent I, I that I paid when I lived there is, was like three times the mortgage that I paid here when I, when I moved. Yeah. I mean, we look at Colorado because of that. Like that's one of the, my dad says, you need to stop your California neighbors from moving to South Dakota because they're driving up real estate prices and they're driving me crazy, right? So he's like, no, no, you're not allowed to come home. No one else is allowed to come here either. You feel the same way? Protect Yeah, Colorado. well, they're moving to Colorado and they're also moving to Texas, I think, from what I've heard. But yeah, I mean, it's when the housing market was so hot here, I was getting aggravated because the people from California were just coming and paying cash and like, just can't. Yep. <laughs> nope. You can't have that. <laughs> yep. We downsize. It's like, pff, 
you know, the asset value is completely different here versus there. So it's easy for us to move. It's impossible to move the other way though. No one can retire in California. It's pretty, it's rough. Well, that's so, true. But I guess if you've lived there long enough, you know, you can well, then you can someplace else. Yeah. yeah, then you can. So I want to talk about altitude executive coaching, but before I do that, let's give us the path. Cause I know you did some corporate experience first. Tell us how that develops into starting the coaching programs. Yeah. So I started, graduated with an economics degree, went to work right away out of college. One of my best friends from high school, she went on to have eight children, never went to college. And she had a job as a corporate secretary for this company called Bechtel. And I was like, okay. You know, she's like, I can't find anything right away. She's like, come to work here. And so I did. And that was like the summer of 90. And I stayed with the company for 27 years. And I would have never in a million years thought that was the case. But just opportunities kept presenting themselves. I worked in project controls and did cost and schedule, worked in accounting. I pretty much did every business function within the organization and moved all over the country. So I moved eventually to Maryland, said, if I'm going to stay with the organization and the company, I need to move to their home office, their headquarters, which was in Maryland at the time. Met my husband there who also worked for the company. So yeah, there was that fishing off the company pier thing that happened. (laughs) And we're still together 26 years later. So (laughs) it was a good thing. And so I did every business function, but I was working with and around engineers, but I wasn't an engineer. So I often partnered myself. I eventually moved into program and project management, and I often was partnered alongside somebody with a technical background. So I worked with a PhD in nuclear physics. I worked with a PhD in nuclear engineering. You know, I was always working with somebody who had that technical expertise, and then I was kind of like the brains and the business behind the operation. So eventually, fast forward to my last job here in Colorado at the Army Depot, We worked on destroying the chemical weapons stockpile for the government. So really exciting jobs, great work. Like people are like, why would you leave that? Well, I left because eventually I was like, this is as far as I'm going to get. I'm never really going to get much further than that. And it was a lot of self-sacrifice. You know, you mentioned in my intro that I really had to find a way to start blending family and wellness. You know, I was the job where I worked 10 hours a day. I commuted an hour each way. I was up and out of the house by five o'clock every morning and back really late. And there was just no time for me and self-care, let alone some quality time with my family. So they asked me to move to Australia and I said, thanks, but no thanks and quit. And I had been thinking about doing the coaching thing and, but it just like got accelerated about three or four months before I wanted it to. And my husband said, just go do this. You know, this is what you want to do. And so I did. And I started originally doing business coaching, but very quickly realized, yeah, strategic planning is kind of boring. I can do it, but it's boring. And it's not really what I have passion for. So now my focus is really primarily on the executive coaching and for promoting women in STEM. So the idea is I don't have an engineering degree, but I want more and more women to know that they're worthy and that, that they can enter into that male saturated industry, not male dominated. I got that. (laughs) (laughs) You've heard my spiel. (laughs) Yeah. I've heard, we've heard the spiel for the listeners. It's, we always want to refer to it as male saturated, not male dominated. And you want to just say why, since we're talking about it? Well, 
I think words matter. You know, I'm also a speaker coach, so words matter to me. And as a mom of two daughters who both excel in science and are interested in careers in science, when we talk about things as male dominated or dominated by a particular gender, well, it's going to turn people off. Like it's going, women or girls are going to look at that and say, this isn't really for me because it's, you know, I don't want to be surrounded by people that don't look like me kind of thing. And so I think the terminology of male saturated just feels softer. It feels more open and hopefully it encourages more and more girls to pursue something that they can be really great at too. It also, I mean, this is, I'm just adding my own flavor, but it also saturated doesn't seem loaded with intent the way dominated seems loaded with intent. Like I don't think anyone set out to make engineering or finance or whatever, like all men, like that wasn't the goal, but it's the reality. And so it is saturated, but you know, I like that better. Well, yeah, you talked, we talked about this and you're like, but isn't it dominated by men? It may have been in the past, but that's not where we want it to be in the future. (laughs) Right. Let's use the words and go in the direction, right? That's right. Where does the idea of emotional intelligence come from? Where does this come out of? Well, when I first got certified as a coach, that's when I first got exposed to it because we partner with an organization called TTI Success Insights that does assessment, multiple assessment work. So if you've heard of DISC, if you've heard of 360, there's a number of different assessments, tools that we use as coaches with our clients. And I just got really interested in this idea of emotional intelligence because EQ was one of the assessments that was offered. And when I started my coaching and I was trying to decide, like, how do I grow this business? And I thought, you know, I really want to be on stages and I really want to speak to people about something that I'm really passionate about. I started talking to a lot of women in the industry. And what I heard over and over again was, well, I can't show emotion at work. It's a sign of weakness. I mean, I heard it like repeatedly or I heard, oh, yeah, I'm really self-aware when it comes to my emotions, I just don't talk about them or don't bring them up because that's frowned upon in the workplace. So I talk about it in my chapter in my book, and I'm very clear to tell people that suppression is not an effective self-management or self-regulation strategy. If we just push this down and push this down, what happens? Eventually it blows up. And you heard my story in my book about in the chapter about how it blew up for me. It wasn't my finest moment. And so it was a great lesson for me though. And I just want to, I think that nowadays, the earlier that we can, you know, I'm coaching 40, 50 year old men and women around the subject that had they learned about it in high school or even middle school you know, in terms of how to social and emotional intelligence now is coming into the schools earlier and earlier. And I love it. Absolutely Mm -hmm. love it and applaud that because, you know, it's really difficult for people to deal with emotions, but it is such a part of who we are. You know, we can't just check that at the door. And so this idea that we can't show emotion at work or that we can't bring it to work and open up about those types of things is just, to me, it's taboo. And that's another dialogue that I want to change. I want to just kind of go back, define it. What is emotional intelligence? Well, so emotional intelligence is really your ability to be aware of your emotions as they're coming up in real time. And there's the EQ assessments that I do are divided into four key areas when it comes to emotional intelligence, self-awareness, self-regulation, 
social awareness and social regulation. So it's about self and then it's about others. So how well do we know our own emotions and can we manage them effectively? And then how well do we understand how our own emotions impact other people and how well are we at reading their emotions in like a networking relationship perspective? So it's key when it comes to interactions and just relationships in general. So that is a very important part of it and something that in my career, I guess I didn't realize early on the importance of those relationships. And so the more that you can open up and really share of yourself and be vulnerable and share your leadership in an authentic way, the more you allow your teams to do the same. You give them permission to do the same. And, you know, I still have people that worked for me 10 years ago or more just reaching out, you know, and how are you and how's your family? I mean, everybody that worked for me, I knew their families, I knew their children. I mean, I knew everything about them because I invested and it was important to me, you know? So that was what made my decision easy to just leave. Like my husband's like, you can do this for a living (laughs) instead of like just a part, you know, one small part of your overall job. So that really appealed to me. I think the relationship is, they're so important. When you think about like tiers of leadership and then people that do the work, who is it most important for? Or is it just like, it's, you get different benefits at different levels? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that it is when we define a leader, right? We talk about who's a leader. I mean, anybody can be a leader, right? So in my mind, it applies to all levels. And, but what's important is like, I want to educate the people that are in that position that have people working for them because they set the stage for others to follow, right? So if they're not leading with emotional intelligence, then the people underneath them are not going to be either because they're going to be like these women that I talk to and say, well, I can't show emotion or I can't cry or I can't, you know, talk about my home life because that's God forbid, you know, this is so funny to me because there's a story that reverberates in my head that my dad told me about, he would go look at people that would manufacture parts for the computers that the company he worked for would put together. This is 50, 60 years ago, like when we just had vacuum tube computers and he would go and he would interview the managers this is something he told me. He said, if you go to the manager and the manager has a mustache, everyone underneath that manager has a mustache, right? If you go to the manager and he's clean shaven, everyone is clean shaven. So when you say they set the stage, I take that really literally. Like if you come to work and you talk about your family and the importance of that balance and all this kind of stuff, then you get to lead and everyone will follow. But if you don't, then everyone just like has to buckle down and work and ignore all that crap. Well, I have to say I've never had a mustache, though I have worked with mustaches. Remember, this is 50 years ago, like when it was more saturated, even more saturated. Got Uh, it. (laughs) So it's important for leaders. It's important for people that are, I think you mentioned doing job searches as well. How would you use emotional intelligence when you're, you know, just getting on the work ladder? I think that it is, you know, the key and what I've really dug deep on is this idea of empathy. And empathy really falls under social awareness in the EQ assessment world. So it's important to have an understanding of your own emotions. I think it's important. There's another piece of emotional intelligence that is in EQ assessment, but I don't talk about it as much, and that's motivation. So the piece about motivation is really all about internally. It's not about, like I've told you, I've never been motivated by money ever. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. Some people aspire to just keep climbing the ladder and keep making more money. And that's wonderful. 
but that's never been a motivator for me. So what is internally motivating you? So emotional intelligence really plays into that from a motivation perspective, understanding what it is that you have a passion for doing, like what excites you to get up and go to work every day kind of thing. So there's a piece of that, I think, that really comes into play when you're looking at what's the right role for me, you know, and most people don't leave their jobs, they leave their supervisors. So again, it goes back to that relationship and this idea of, can I work for somebody, you know, who doesn't necessarily align with my values and beliefs? And I think that's, you know, something we need to ask ourselves. So many times we feel stuck in a role and, you know, whether it's because of money or for whatever reason, you know, we feel like I have to support my family. That was the hardest part for me too, is like giving up a six-figure income to just like start all over again, you know, midlife kind of thing. Like that was scary, but it's one of those things like I wanted that for me and I wanted it for my children to be able to see that, to say, you know, you don't have to, especially as they're at that age right now in college, trying to figure out what they want to do with the rest of their lives. Look, you don't have to have it all figured out at 19 and 20. I thought I did maybe, but my career has gone so many different directions since then. And now I'm in a totally different world. You wrote something in the book or not in the book, in the chapter that I wanted to pull on a little bit because I want to make sure that I understand it correctly. And I, and I think I might be taking it the wrong way. So you wrote, you know, have you ever worked with somebody you don't like? And then you follow that up with the fact that you don't like them is not their problem. It's yours. So Please explain that. Why is that important to point out? <laughs> I love that. So you're going to have to tell me afterwards what you thought when you first read that. People do get stumped up by that a little bit. So the thing, the message there is that self-awareness is the key to emotional intelligence. So you need to be aware of yourself, but you need to own your own emotions and your own behavior. So Emotional intelligence begins with personal responsibility. So I say, if you don't get along with somebody, you have, I can't control that. I can't control how they act. I can't control, you know, their behavior. I can only own a thoughtful response to that. So the key to self-awareness and more importantly, self-regulation, which is managing your emotions effectively. I'm very careful not to say control and control your emotions because I also have been known to say you can't control your emotions any more than you can control breathing they're going to happen. They're going to come up. It's part of who we are, right? But what you want to do is learn how to manage those effectively. And managing those effectively means I'm not going to let your behavior, your bad behavior reflect poorly on me because I'm going to react and come down to your level kind of thing. I'm going to emotionally react in that moment. That's not to say that I have always done that well, Of course, <laughs> but it's a work in progress. But that's why I say it's not their problem because they don't know any better. They go on about their day and they're, you know, going to continue to be the way they are. I, right. So all you can do is control or not control. All you can do is manage the way you respond to them. And so right. I say, own your own thoughtful response rather than an emotional, you know, gut negative reaction kind of thing. I think that's pretty much how, that's kind of how I took it. But the reason I wanted to poke at it was because and I don't want to get anyone in trouble, say anything wrong, but I'm going to. My mouth perfectly fits my foot. So it's if I put my foot in my mouth, just call me on it. I think that we have a moment in time where there's a lot of blaming for inequality. 
there's a lot of blaming or the lack of taking responsibility for the things that I can do to better a situation, my situation, my family situation. Not to say that there isn't privilege, not to say that there isn't, not to say that I wasn't given a really, dealt a really good hand in life, not saying any of those things. It's just, it seems to me that sometimes when people have the ability to improve their situation by owning their emotions and react in a more thoughtful way, they don't. And sometimes they point a lot of fingers and they get angry and there's a lot of social media that comes up and there's a lot of stuff that happens. Do you see that sort of a cultural norm changing? And then if so, how do we get to the individual and say, hey, just worry about you? Like the emotional intelligence ends with your sphere of activity. You can't control anybody else. How do we really focus people back on making changes in their choices? Yeah, I love that question. First of all, have you been like stalking my LinkedIn because I just did a post on, no, I, <laughs> I just did a post on privilege, honestly. And my Maya Angelou quote that I love, which is do your best until you know better. And when you know better, do better. What you're talking about is at the heart of my coaching, my executive coaching for women. My very first conversation, and like I say, it doesn't always fit. Like they don't always buy into it. But what I tell them is put your head down and do your work. Like stop worrying about everything else that's happening around you because all it is is an, a distraction and an excuse. One of my biggest, I don't know if I talked about this in the chapter or not, if I, I'd be surprised if I didn't, but one of my biggest pet peeves is just people that fall to, into this victim mindset. You know, I mean, I, I didn't, yes, I had a, pretty privileged life for the most part, I would say, you know, I talk about my adoption and just being blessed coming into this family and feeling worthy because I was chosen from, by this family out of everybody in the nursery that day at Catholic charities. Right. I was the one like that big, ugly head of hair. <laughs> it was me, you know, like, wow, I feel pretty blessed. But I just had a great, I had a great life when it comes to that, but doesn't mean I, had didn't face challenges as a woman in a male saturated industry. I mean, I was not always, always given the opportunities. I was not always, but I didn't bitch and moan about it because it didn't do me any good. You know, did I have my moments? Sure. But really what I want is the whole idea of women's empowerment and being empowered is taking matters into your own hands. Like don't complain about what's happening around you. The way in which you change your situation is you make it happen, you know? So I really want to encourage more and more women that are in those industries to lean in. You don't need permission, right? Don't ask for permission. Beg for forgiveness after the fact kind of thing. But don't sit there and play victim because that does you no good whatsoever. I mean, it does you no good. And I mean, I deal with it with my kids too. It's not just women, you know, my son likes to play victim a lot too. And I don't, I call him on it because it just doesn't, it just doesn't serve you. And, you know, at the end of the day, what are you, you're the one who's suffering really in that scenario. And so change, you know, find ways to change your situation, but focus on you, focus on you doing, being the best version of you. And when you are, people will notice it may take a little bit longer, you know, all of that, but in the interim, you know, hopefully you're doing what you love to do. And I, I love that. And I think it's, it's kind of asking, given sort of the public conversation, 
I think it's asking people to buck the trend. Like it's very trendy to bitch on social media. It's very trendy to be a victim. And I say this recognizing, like, just like you said, I'm blessed with many, 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 many privileges. And when I see somebody that is less privileged than I am, but not doing the work and instead complaining about something, I'm just like, I can't even say, I can't say anything that's called, it doesn't allow me to say anything, but I want to say, Hey, if you just, like you said, put your head down and do the work, you yeah. will get recognized. You know, any employer who sees somebody put their heads down and do the work, they're going to want to advance that person. Like that is gold. Indeed. And it's come true in my coaching too. I mean, the, my very first executive coaching client, I worked with her for 18 months and she eventually got promoted into a VP position, but she spent a lot of time on our very early sessions, just bitching and moaning. And I listened to it up to a point and then I was like, okay, are you done? Let's go. <laughs> time to do the work. Yeah. Time to do the work. And, and that's really what, I mean, there's a book at our last project in Pueblo, Colorado that I was talking about, we read a book called The Oz Principle. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's a great, it's a great book. And it was like a required reading for all of our leadership team. And we went through a complete cultural transformation. That was a really interesting project where, you know, my company was the lead and we had two other prime, very large organizations. So it was a melding of like 1200 employees and really three different corporate cultures. So very, very difficult circumstances as far as that goes but it talks a lot about victim mentality and victim mindset in there and i think it's okay to go below the line is what they call it like it's okay to go below the line it's just not okay to dwell there yeah. you know so i think there are days when you will have that those moments but you can't live there you know you can't dwell there you've got to come above the line and i think that the reality is if you do live there the person that that costs is you. Like the, you bear the brunt of that cost. And if if we would focus more on that, we have the political divisiveness happens and people get angry with each other. But in that anger, if you then are self-reflective and, and go, huh, that might be true, but for me to excel, I have to do the work. And you realize that, then you can excel. But if you don't and you just succumb to that, you know, polarization and, oh, they suck and it's terrible and it's bad and I can't get by because of this and this and this and all kinds of excuses, you suffer, right? For sure. And you become part of that conversation in the negative side. It's and rough. nobody wants to help a victim either. You know, no. I mean, that's the other thing is, you know, you may think that that's doing you some good, but it's not. Nobody I, wants I, to help somebody who's won't doesn't want to help themselves. Politicians want to pretend. And that's the, they get a lot of messaging and that's unfortunate, but there's a lot of people that pretend to help the victim because mm. that's how they get votes. And I think that's a problem. Anyway, that's a totally different topic. Let's not go there. <laughs> that's <laughs> another podcast show. <laughs> that's a totally another podcast show. I got to have another podcast that I can talk about that kind of stuff. So in the chapter, you talk about those, and you already mentioned the sort of the four prog progressive areas of empathy. And yeah, I think you just touched on social awareness is one of them and self-awareness is one of them. Can you just kind of go through the progression? How does the progression work? Yeah. So self-awareness. So there's the two are self-awareness and self-regulation are, that's kind of where it starts. Those are dealing with your own emotions and look and really reflecting inwards. So it's sort of like more about you. And then it moves into what we call others, the other category, which is now that I've gotten in tune and in touch with my own emotions, 
Do I understand the impact that they have on other people? Do I understand how they work to build effective relationships or how they work to tear tear those down, you know, depending on depending on how we're using them. So it's kind of separated into that self versus others. And I always say like self-awareness is like the foundation, really. So if, if I can't be aware of my own emotions as they're coming up in real time, then it makes it very difficult for me to manage them. And also if I can't be in tune with my own emotions, then it makes it really hard for me to care about Jonathan or anybody else, right? It's like, I'm dealing with my own crisis here. You know, it's like, I can't really be concerned or empathize with somebody else. So to me, it feels like whether or not that's really the way it is in EQ in the assessment world, I, for me, it feels like they build on one another. And so it really starts with that idea of self and then works into your interactions with others. Do you recommend, you know, something crazy like a meditation practice for improving self-awareness? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If, if you look at the assessment report, which is great, I love the way it's laid out because there are those five areas. So motivation is one of them in the one that I give. And so when I work with people, I say, pick an area and you pick that area and then you go to that page in the report and it gives you specific ways in which you can, if Jonathan wants to work on self-awareness, he should, you know, and it literally, and it talks about, so a lot of the things, a couple examples of things that I've used with my clients that have worked, if it's a self-awareness type thing, you want to be like journaling. You want to be reflecting on, you know, whether it be a Monday or a Friday at the end of the week, you know, I, I don't always recommend Fridays sometimes because it's like by that point you're really burnt out. But, you know, maybe as you start the week, just reflect on how, what did I do the week before and reflect on the types of things that trigger you. You know, so when I talk about this idea of managing my emotions or whatever, well, when so-and-so said this, right, it really set me off. Right. And so the more that you can be in tune to those things that are triggering for you, the more than you can effectively manage them. When it comes to empathy, that is really falls, like I said, into that social awareness and the other category. One of the simple ways, this to me is just so basic and so easy to do. One of the simple ways that we can work on empathy is when I'm having a conversation, I can say, Jonathan, right in the middle, I can just throw your name in there. And all of a sudden, when you do that, like, how does that make you feel? It, it I, just I'm, like, decide, I'm like, immediately. I, I know. You're just like, you perk up. It's like, just this idea of, oh my gosh, I'm being seen. I'm being heard. I'm being valued. Like, just saying your name, just the simplest of tools that I, that's what I love about this, about the assessment tool that I use is that that is just a simple yet effective way. And I have a client right now that is, that does that so well. And I'm just reinforcing that. I said, you know, that when you do that, it's really key to demonstrating empathy. And she's so good at that. She's also falling into the victim mentality. So we got to work on that. But it is, you know, that's just a simple tool, something that you can do immediately. But you have to be authentic with that. Like I, I know people that do that who've been trained by, you know, in sales. And mm. if you say the person's name eight times and they'll be like, they'll fall in love with you as a sales, you know, that kind of thing. Oh. You're aware of that as a sales training tool as well. No, I'm not. I, I was never a saleswoman. So I, I can't speak to that. But I will say it's a great tool for remembering people's names too. So that's what I use it for. But yeah, there's, it's not, okay. If I don't say like, if somebody were to say Sandra, <laughs> like then I know I'm in trouble, right? That's how I knew I was in trouble when my mom used Sandra versus Sandy and raised her voice. So not in a condescending tone, do we slip the name in, but you know, in another way that really acknowledges and 
and just makes people feel seen and heard. Empathy. Okay. I'll take a deeper dive for you into empathy if that's okay. Yeah. Because I think it's what is super important about empathy to me that people don't necessarily understand is that empathy is not, I agree with you. Okay. So people are like, oh, and it doesn't, and I told you, I feel like I've had a privileged life. So there are people that, you know, have been homeless, have had worse, far worse circumstances for me, right? And so you think to yourself, well, I can't empathize with that person. I can't put myself in their shoes. And really, empathy is not about agreement. And it's not even necessarily about understanding as much as it is about just listening. You know, sometimes people just want you to listen. I talk a lot in my coaching about setting intentions for conversations and things like that. So sometimes when you walk into your boss's office, just say, you know what? I just want you to listen. I don't want you to solve my problem. I don't want you to fix it. I just want you to listen. And that's, that's the best gift we can give is to just like set that intention and, and make it clear about what it is. And sometimes I just, I just want you to listen to me, you know? And the other thing I think Brene Brown does the best job about distinguishing the difference between sympathy and empathy. You know, so I don't, because you grew up homeless and you had such a hard life. Yes, I do feel sympathy for you, but it's not, that doesn't mean that I can't feel empathy for you, but empathy like rarely does a response. You know, when I'm sharing something vulnerable and open with you, rarely does a response solve that or help that situation. So don't feel called to say, or to solve it or to, you know, say something, just say, thank you for sharing that. You know, thank you for being willing to share that. It seems really important though, because you, I mean, you started that with saying you might go into your boss's office and say, I don't need you to solve this. I need you to just listen. Right. But that means you have to be aware that what you need is someone to listen, you know, someone with authority to listen. So you have to have that self-awareness in order to go and have that social, you know, yeah. Conversation. Well, and guess what? You also have to have that relationship, right? So that you have to have a, that relationship with your boss or with your supervisor, with, even with a coworker, where you can be willing to say, you know, to share vulnerable things and to say, I don't need you to solve this for me. I just want you to, I just want you to listen, yeah. you know, and there's yeah. so much power in, I talk in the, in the chapter, about, I wish there was a way that I could put pictures and stuff in there because there's a symbol that I use when I present on this that is a Japanese symbol that demonstrates listening. It's it's a combination of symbols and it to actively listen means you use your eyes, means it use your you use your ears, you are completely just you know not distracted. There are so many factors that go into listening, and this symbol just does this amazing job of like bringing it all together to say active listening. The other thing that's super important is that when I say to you, Jonathan, how's your week been? I actually have to care about the response, right? So often people just say, Hey, how's it going? How's your week? Good. Yeah. You know? And so I talk a lot about the importance of don't, I said this to my son the other day, don't make a statement when you can ask a question. Because when you make statements, you're talking at people, you're not talking with them, and you are assuming that you already know what they need, right? Ask the question, bring them into the conversation, then care about what it is that they actually say in response to it. So often people just like, you know, these niceties, 
how are you? How's your day? You know, but we don't really care about how their day is. If we did, we would sit and listen. Got to listen. So I ask everyone to, to simplify things for us. So there's an enormous amount of noise, right? So just really simply, if you met somebody that you saw you wanted to help quickly, what is the one thing you would say to them, do this and you will have better personal and financial outcomes? I would say it kind of goes back to what we have been talking about. And that is this idea of ownership and accountability. Mm -hmm. You know, I can't hold other people accountable to expectations. Number one, if I haven't been clear about what those expectations are, but if I haven't demonstrated that same behavior myself. So I think it's really this idea of personal accountability is just so important to me in life. You know, I mean, not just workplace, but also home, you know, same way with my kids. I can't ask you to do something that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. So I think it's, that that is, I think the penultimate coaching answer. Like if, if I'm being too cliche, <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't, not that at all. Not that at all. If you're in the gym and you have a trainer, the trainer holds you accountable. Like if you have an accountability partner that you, you do the thing and you report the thing to the person and they report their thing to you, that's accountability. Like it, that is the number one thing. And if you're accountable to yourself, it's like, that's everything. Well, and I spent a lot of time early on in my business deciding, am I a coach or am I a consultant? And so that's a really interesting that could probably be in a whole nother podcast episode as well. But in my mind, what sets me apart as a coach versus a consultant is, do you want me to do the work or do you want me to help you to figure out how to do the work? Right. And right. ultimately how we become better is to figure out how to do these things for ourselves. So as a coach, it's my job to hold you accountable, but it's also my job to ask the right questions and pull this information out of you. Right. So it's about the personal accountability, but it's, you know, my role as a coach is also about like, so often we know the answers. We have the answers within us. We just need somebody to ask the right questions to pull them out. I totally agree. On the flip side of that little piece of advice, let's say that there's, again, tons of noise, a lot of people trying to sell ideas and sell products. What is one thing that they might be doing that you would say, hey, stop doing that? Well, I had a similar conversation. So I'll share this with a, this was a, not my executive coaching client, but a speaker coaching client. And I just was on a live LinkedIn. There was five or six, like really hot shot women on this, like they've clearly made it. And yet the first 10 or 15 minutes of the conversation was them telling me how wonderful they are and name dropping and how this and how that. And I think talk about eliminating the noise. When I coach my speakers, I say, don't waste the first 10 minutes on stage telling me about your resume or how wonderful you are because you were selected to be on that stage for a reason. They already know that you're going to deliver value. So I think we waste a lot of time with telling people how great we are and just feeling like we need to do that, need to do that. When in reality, you know, we're where we are because of all of those great choices and great relationships and, you know, great leadership that we demonstrated. So just embrace that and stop feeling the need to validate or justify or rationalize. Assume your value. Assume your value. Assume your value. Just stand like up I'm statement. worthy, period. Yeah, I'm worthy, I don't need totally. to sit here and tell you because what, in my experience, those that need to tell you how wonderful they are, are typically not so wonderful. 
Yeah. Or they're really <laughs> struggling with their own self-value. Like they're really Absolutely. struggling. Yeah. So uh, I promised at the beginning that there'd be a couple zingers at the end, right? So this we're to that point where it's zinger time. Zinger time. Okay. It's zinger time. And they're not, they're not zingers. I, I say that, but it's because it surprises some people. So what was the last thing you changed your mind about? I'm reading a book now in my Bible study group called Uncommon Ground by Timothy Keller. And interestingly enough, it is about it's really rooted in your faith in Christianity, but it's this idea of how do we coexist with people that don't think and believe the same things that we believe. So I think the last thing I changed my mind about had to do with this. And again, it was like taking my own advice in terms of listening rather than, you know, we have this mindset and I actually was watching it on a show the other night. It's called it's a type of bias, but it's this idea that, you know, if I win, then Jonathan has to lose, you know? And so one of the things that just was very, yeah, zero sum, zero sum bias is actually, that's what it's called. Zero sum bias. So this idea, and I think that what has been made a profound difference for me is this idea that it's not about, there can be a win-win without a loss, you know, like, and maybe my win is you winning. You know, and maybe I don't necessarily like I don't need to like if we entered every conversation to say there's something for me to learn here. You know, I know that Jonathan knows something that I don't. And if I enter it with the idea that I want to learn something new versus I want to just change his mind about something, you know, Mm. we we're always having these conversations like it depends on again, it goes back to intent. Like, am I having this conversation with you? Am I talking louder? Am I, you know going over and over a point because I want to change your mind or is it just because I want you to hear my perspective, you know, and I, I have these conversations with my kids as well. It's like, I don't necessarily agree with you on a particular subject, but that doesn't mean that I'm not open to hearing what you have to say about it and understanding why you feel the way you do. If we approached more conversations with that open-mindedness rather than like I win, you lose, you know, and it's all about me being right and you being wrong, that'd be powerful, huh? Can be huge. That was a mind change for you. So a month well, ago, a two months ago, thing, you were yeah, like, oh. I think, I don't know if I'd go that far. It's been a while. It's probably not the most recent thing, but it's just something that comes, it's being reinforced so much with this book that I'm reading. Yeah. And I'm sharing more with, with the women in my Bible study that has just come across louder and louder for me, I think. For sure. So can you name a place that you've been to? It's really had an impact, a place that's had a really big impact on who you are today. And what was the impact? Bali, Indonesia. It was 2020 and I was there in the middle of COVID. So I went to go speak at a women's leadership and empowerment conference. I flew out there like on March 5th, I think. And I flew back on March 13th. So literally COVID had hit and it was such a, like, I felt like I was in a bubble. I honestly didn't want to leave. Because things there were so different than things were in the U.S. You know, thankfully, I wasn't listening to the news and wasn't really watching TV. The the profound impact that Bali had on me, I'm going back to Bangkok in March this year to speak at that same conference because that just that whole part of the world is the people are amazing. It is when you talk about feeling welcomed, feeling like valued, it's incredible 
the things that they do that make you feel like, I mean, there was chaos happening in the rest of the world. And I would come down and get my coffee and they would bow to me in the morning and say good morning. And, you know, I mean, it was just like, I felt like I was in a whole nother world to the point where I really didn't want to come back. But it's one of those things like it had a profound impact on me, that same organization, Tomorrow People, I went to be a board member for that organization so that I could continue supporting them and continue speaking at these conferences and just sharing that experience with other people. Sounds wonderful. I just want to say, uh, as expected, this is a great conversation. I appreciate you coming on. How do people connect with you? So my website is altitude-exec.com and my email is slam at altitude-exec.com and you can find me on LinkedIn, Sandy Lamb. And that's probably the, the best way is to connect with me. On LinkedIn? Yeah, it's on LinkedIn. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. There's a lot of value here. Let's all remember to uh, work our way towards that empathy. Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes.